6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching with an introduction and the book of 3 John. We're going to study the epistles of John. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is the normal order. That's the order in your Bible. We're going to take them up in the inverse order. We're going to take the two little short ones first, that's 3rd and 2nd, and leave 1st John to the big climax. But um, whenever we go into the Word of God, we want to open with a word of prayer. So it's by our hearts. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Word. We pray, Father, you'd write it on our hearts. We do pray, Father, you'd open our hearts and lives to your word, that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, our coming King, in whose name we commit this evening and ourselves. Amen. The Epistles of John. Okay. And, uh, you know, the early church in the first century was under attack both from the inside and the outside. And you say, well, (laughs) so what's changed, right? That's exactly what's going on today, isn't it? So you'll find that this is surprisingly relevant. It should not surprise us that the Holy Spirit has anticipated every conceivable form of attack and diversion. And these three epistles that we're going to explore are full of insights that are timely for each of us right now at the individual personal level as well as a collective or corporate uh, level. And so, first of all, who was John? Well, he was the brother of James the Greater, huh? And uh, he was probably the younger of the sons of Zebedee and Salome, his mother, and was born, not the, not the Salome you're thinking of, different Salome, but anyway, and was born in Bethsaida. And uh, his father apparently was a man of some wealth, we infer, from a number of allusions. Uh, John was doubtlessly trained in all that constituted the normal education of a Jewish youth. And when he grew up, his, he followed the occupation of a fisherman with his family on the Sea of Galilee. And don't regard that as some kind of menial occupation. They had partners, multiple boats. It was quite a business that uh, they were in. And uh, so that, that'll impact as you, as you study their lives. When John the Baptist, different John now, when John the Baptist began his ministry in the wilderness of Judea, John, with many others, gathered around him and was deeply influenced by his teaching, which, which was, of course, a call to repentance. And that's where they heard the announcement, Behold the Lamb of God. Remember, John the Baptist introduced Jesus by that title, Twice. And uh, that's a very Jewish title. It's alluding to the Passover. Behold, the Lamb of God. Uh, And uh, so on the uh, invitation of Jesus, John became a disciple and ranked among his followers for a time. He and his brother then probably returned to their former avocation, but we don't know for how long. Jesus again called them, and now they left all and permanently joined the company of his disciples, actually traveled with them little different thing than just being a believer. They left their businesses, their uh, uh, commitments, and joined the, the disciples. To become, incidentally, John became one of the three insiders. For their zeal and intensity of character, Jesus gave them a nickname. He and his brother were called Boanerges, which is sons of thunder. 
You know, it's very funny to me. I always I remember as a kid even, I'd see these Sunday school uh, film strips and stuff. You always see John portrayed sort of effeminately, sort of passively, sort of, you know, uh, for a number of reasons, I guess. But it's interesting. That's just contrary to the scriptural. His nickname was Son of, Son of Thunder. These guys, he and his brother were <laughs> rowdies, I assume, right? And uh, anyway, this spirit of chutzpah, broke out on a number of occasions in, in the uh, Gospels, in uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke, of course. They show up there rather than the Gospel of John for a number of reasons. But uh, he had insider status. He became one of the innermost circle. There were three of that. They were the only ones available at the raising of Jairus' daughter. They were the three that were present at the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. And uh, at Gethsemane, they were closer in inner circle. And of course, in Mark 13, there are four, there are three of the four that were given the inside briefing, which we call the Olivet Discourse, Peter, James, and John, and also Peter's brother, Andrew, was with them. And so um, he he's also was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And uh, he refers to it, rather than name himself, he just describes himself sort of in a third person uh, posture, uh, in, in his narrative in John, especially in those final chapters, 19, 20, and 21. In that final week uh, of Christ's uh, ministry, at the betrayal, he and Peter followed Christ afar off, while the others betook themselves hasty flight. The rest of them split, but Peter and John hung in there. And uh, uh, at the trial, he followed Christ into the council chamber. He had access somehow, and thence to the praetorium. And then from there to the very place of crucifixion. So John had access for some reason. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was consigned to John's care at the cross. This is going to be turned, this is going to turn out to be very relevant to us when we get to the next epistle. Understand that Jesus consigned the care of his mother not to any of his three brothers, but to John the Apostle. And, uh, that's going to be relevant to our discussions in our next session. But uh, we'll talk about that then. To John and Peter, Mary first conveyed, the, this is now Mary Magdalene, conveyed the uh, tidings of the resurrection, and they were the first to go and see what her strange words meant in John 20. After the resurrection, he and Peter again returned to the Sea of Galilee, where the Lord revealed himself to them. And all we know is that John can run faster than Peter. Huh? But anyway, that's another... We find that Peter and John frequently uh, are together after this. They're really, they were insiders together. They also were had shared many of these experiences together. In the later years, John remained apparently in Jerusalem among the leadership because we see him at the council, of course, in Acts 15. And uh, he's so alluded to in Galatians 2, Paul's epistle. And he apparently was not there, however, at the time of Paul's last visit. We infer that from Acts 21. His subsequent history is unrecorded. We don't know literally how, what happened after that in detail. He appears to have returned to Ephesus, but exactly at what time is unknown. He, his, these three epistles were probably written by him from Ephesus. And uh, he suffered under persecution and was, of course, banished to Patmos. Most of us are aware of that. And where he again returned, after that, he returned to Ephesus where he finally died. And so uh, there is some confusion as to when he wrote which. 
Most of us assume he wrote his gospel earlier, because in the Bible you encounter his gospel, and Revelation's at the end, and the epistles in the middle. There is some extra biblical evidence that, well, uh, it, by the way, this, this was he, probably about 98 AD, having outlived near, uh, most, if not all, his uh, companions. Uh, and uh, So uh, there's some extra biblical evidence that he may have written the gospel after his Patmos experience. I was rapping with uh, my friend Hal Lindsey, and uh, who's uh, and he he may he's he's caught, uh, come to the inference that the gospel was written after the Patmos experience. And when I pressed him on that, he, there's a number of clues he feels in the text, but primarily he also has encountered some extra, extra biblical evidence that seems to suggest that. It appeals to me because in the Book of Revelation we're very conscious of the heptatic structure, the seven this seven 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 seven. It's very conspicuous in the architecture of the book of Revelation. That same architecture is in the gospel, but very subtly. You have to watch for it. But uh, that's another whole study. There are many interesting traditions about John's residence at Ephesus, but we can't claim these have the character of historical fact. One of those colorful traditions is that they tried to boil them in oil and it didn't work. And you, you, there are all these quaint these traditions in the early church about John. And... Uh, we can smile at those, but I think we should treat them with great caution because there's no reliable uh, substantiation of some of those colorful traditions. Ephesus, of course, is one of those must-visit places because the ruins there are phenomenal. They're surprisingly intact. Um, and, of course, it's a scene of so much history with Paul, of course, and, uh, and of course, John and so forth. So in, in your planning your trips, you've got a chance. You don't want to miss Ephesus. Some of the other of the church, seven church remnants are, are pretty rough, and uh, it's, it, it's a, sometimes we say it's a you know, long run for a short slide kind of thing. But uh, this is really worth it. Now the writings of John, of course, he wrote five books of the New Testament. His Gospel, of course, the book of Revelation, and the three epistles. And most uh, scholars assume that the epistles are written last, just before the close of the First century. The distinctive of his gospel he, uh, is that it's an epistle in which his purpose is declared. Matthew is a scribe. He tries to just be diligent and record history. But John is writing an editorial, an op-ed piece, as we might call it, because his purpose is declared. Many other things that Jesus, the presence of disciples, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's unabashedly argumentative. And he does that in his epistle seven times. We'll encounter that when we get to what's called First uh, John. His sevenfold structure is very evident in the gospel. And I won't go into that here. We can get that. If you study or learn the Bible in 24 hours, we highlight that there. And of course, uh, in our verse-by-verse uh, -verse study of John. Of the book of Revelation, the heptatic structure is not only evident, it's dominant. So that uh, the fact that the gospel may have been written after the book of Revelation is an appealing idea. There's an interesting thing, though, I'd like you to notice. You know, I'm always fascinated by those evidences that the Bible as a whole, the 66 books, were very explicitly designed supernaturally. And there's all kinds of that. It's interesting to me to see the consistency of designations. The friend of God, that's a term used of Abraham in James 2 and 2 Chronicles and Isaiah, several places in the Old Testament. And it all derives from an incident in Genesis 18 where God says about Abraham, shall I hide from him what I'm about to do? Abraham is called the friend of God. It's one of his titles. 
Why? Because God reveals to him what he's about to do. The concept of being a friend, friendship is associated with letting him in on what's coming in, in, God's, in, 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 the, in the text here. Well, when you get to the disciples, Jesus says, now, before you were my servants, now you are my friends. And that's in the upper room from John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. The, those whole passages there are where Jesus, because they're his friends, he lets them in on what's coming. That's where the rapture is first talked about in John 14 and so forth. So the friend of God seems to be associated in the scripture with letting you in on the inside. Okay. Well, another term in the scripture is beloved. Okay. And there is a one of the Old Testament people that has the title of being God's beloved. Who is it? Daniel. Very good. And Daniel, of course, is the beloved prophet. But he also is the one that's been given the benefit of what we would call apocalyptic visions. The visions of Daniel from chapter 7 to 12. The last half of the book is these apocalyptic visions. And many of them are conspicuously interlinked with the passage in the book of Revelation. The word beloved. Who is the beloved disciple? John. And who wrote the apocalypse of the New Testament? John. It fascinates me to notice that the friendship carries with it a consistency, and the concept of beloved has an aspect of consistency. So I thought I'd point that out. But uh, the Gospel of John has a number of distinctives. The book of Revelation has its heptatic structure. And the disciples, of the epistles of John, there are three. The third one is to Gaius. The second one is to someone called the elect lady. And we'll leave that mystery for next time. And First John is to the church at large. And many people regard First John, many scholars do, as not an epistle in the usual sense. It actually seems to be a sermon. It's an organized uh, articulation to the church at large. It probably did take the form of a letter to one or several of the churches, but it is a little, it has its own distinctive character. And I've chosen to go at these inversely. Uh, get the small ones first as sort of a warm-up and leave the first John, which is really the core thing, finally. So we're going to tackle tonight a little introduction and then we'll get into the third epi the epistle of John, which is a little shorty. So uh, in retrospect, Matthew, he, he focused on the promised one. He sees his credentials. Ma Mark, who's really the amanuensis for Peter, we believe, and it, just, it focuses on how he worked. He sees his power. And Luke, this is what he was like, because he's a doctor. His nature, he was interested in his, that he was human. John focused on who he really was, his godship, if you will. So each of the four Gospels are quite distinctive. And it might be useful to refresh our perspective of that before we jump into John's letters. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah. He's Jewish, the Messiah, the, the coming king. Mark deals with his as a servant, the suffering servant. Luke, the son, being a doctor, the son of man, and John, the son of God. So it's interesting that in genealogies, Matthew has a Jewish genealogy. It starts with the first Jew, if I can put it that way, called Abraham, and he has the legal um, uh, genealogy of Jesus Christ. Mark, his focus is as a servant, and we don't care about the pedigree of a servant, so it's the only one of the four that does not have a genealogy. Luke since he's interested in his humanity, if you will, he starts his genealogy with Adam. 
When you, from Adam to Abraham, I mean, it's distinctive. From Abraham to David, they're both identical. But from David on, Luke takes a different path than Matthew does. Matthew goes through the legal line through Solomon. Luke goes through the bloodline of Mary, in effect. Now, John has a genealogy, but most people don't recognize it as the genealogy of the pre-existent ones, the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And uh, in that whole, in analyzing that, that's really, in effect, the genealogy of the pre-existent one. But Matthew focused on what Jesus said, Mark, and what he actually did, and Luke, what he felt. You see his passion in there. And John, who he was. And uh, that's why I'm always so intrigued by Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. It's a great movie, but it's sort of, in a sense, it's sort of like Luke. You feel the passion, but he doesn't do what John does, and that describes who he really is, the Creator incarnate, entering his creation to execute a program for our behalf. So Matthew wrote to the Jew, Mark to the Roman, Luke to the Greek, John to the church. And uh, the first miracle in Matthew, of course, was a leper cleanse. The Jew, that, that's a very Jewish kind of a thing. Both Mark and Luke, since they're both Gentiles, a demon expelled is the first thing in both of those. John has a very different perspective. It's a water to wine. And we even find a hint there of the church issues in terms of communion and all of that. Uh, Matthew ends with the resurrection. Mark goes one step further. He goes to the ascension. Luke goes one step further yet, the promise of the Spirit. Why? Because he's setting up the stage for his sequel, Luke volume 2, called the book of Acts. John, the promise of his return. And that, of course, sets the stage for his sequel, so to speak, the book of Revelation. So, and we have uh, where they camped on each of them. I won't get into all that here. And the ensign of the tribes on the four sides of the camp of Israel, which had as symbols the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. And it's been noticed even in the early church, they noticed that those four faces of the cherubim, as represented in the ensigns of the four camps, are also the four labels of the uh, 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 four Gospels. Matthew being the, representing us the lion of the tribe of Judah, Mark being servants, and the classical idiom of service was the ox, the strength of the ox, Luke, man, of course, and John the eagle. And uh, so... So for what it's worth. And there's also a little different now. But anyway, so that's, that's the perspective of John. John is really focusing on a, on a very high plane here in his materials. The gospel of John is a very unusual gospel because it's one that a beginner can read and gain something from. It's also the most advanced theologian in the world can go through it and find, make, continually make new discoveries. They often say it's, it's uh, accessible enough for a child to wade in but deep enough for an elephant to to wash. So. Okay, enough of that. The Epistles of John, first, second, and third. But we're going to start with the easy one first. Okay, third John. It's it, it's the shortest one in the Greek, and it's written for the purpose of commending to Gaius some Christians who were strangers in the place where he lived and who had gone thither for the purpose of preaching the gospel. So this is sort of a tutorial for his friend Gaius. The second and third epistles were probably written soon after the uh, first, from all these probably from Ephesus. One of the key words in this will be testified, report, bear record, record. Um, these are all uh, uh, witness terms, and we'll be sensitive to that as we go. They're not just words, but by the life that's led. Every Christian is a, is a witness, either a good one or a bad one. We're either helping the truth or hindering it. 
And we're either part of the solution or part of the problem. In other words, okay. So, third epistle of John. Gaius is the encourager. From verses two through eight, it's going to be a, talk about a, 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 a service and love. The second one will be Diotrophenes, which is the dictator. And there's five indictments laid on him. He's bad news. And then Demetrius, he's the exemplar. He's the good example. He's the good guy. And each of us has the opportunity to be part of the solution or part of the problem. I won't ask for a show of hands. Okay? But guys, the encourager. Verse 1, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. By the way, right now, before I prejudice your view, what does that mean? When John says, whom I love in the truth. What's he talking about? The veracity of facts in general? What does he mean by the truth? What, what, I love in the truth. What is he probably alluding to? Being a, very good. Yes, Christ. It's equivalent to the way we might say, love you in Christ. In the truth. He's using the truth here, I believe, as a title of Jesus Christ. That's not important here. It's pretty, it doesn't disrupt our flow here. But it may be very important for us to understand John's style here. Anyway, the elder. Presbyteros. What does it mean? It's an elder of age, elder of two people, an elder of senior. It's also, though, a term of rank or office, and is so used typically in the church. The New Testament uses the term bishop, elders, and presbyters interchangeably. Some people try to make, you know, hair, uh, distinctions between these three, but there's some evidence that they're really, in effect, for our purposes certainly, uh, interchangeable terms. And uh, we even find 24 elders seated on the thrones around the throne of God in, in Revelation 4, which is a very critical area to really understand. Now, this is the third epistle of John. It's addressed to Caius or Gaius, and, uh, it's, and, but whether to the Christian uh, 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 by that name in Macedonia or in Corinth or in Derby. There are three Gaiuses in the Bible, in Macedonia, Corinth, and Derby, in different places. Which one is the focus of the letter is a subject of speculation. We don't know. I'm sorry I can't give you some fringe discovery to give you a bias there, but I'm sure you've got more important things to focus on. Uh, we, the truth of the matter is uh, com the commentary community is uncertain as to which one it might be. But he continues, verse 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Interesting. First of all, John loved this man. Beloved occurs four times in this little note. Four times. And we know from this that he was sound in doctrine. That's refreshing. But I want you to notice the inversion. May your physical health be as sound as your spiritual health. That's pretty cool, I think. You know, that's, that's, that in itself is a, an interesting accolade just tucked away inside that. You see, I, I uh, hope you prosper and be in health as, as your soul is prospering. That's, uh, there's an inversion there that I think is, is colorful. In physical health, you know, we can identify a number of factors. Nutrition, exercise, cleanliness, proper rest, and the discipline of a balanced life. Any surprises there? This pretty much is a, you know, a five-step program to, uh, you could elaborate on. Your spiritual health, same group. Nourishment, the Word of God. That's what, did, what digestion is to the body, meditation is to the soul. Wow. Exercise, a godly workout. Guys read it, meditated on it, delighted in it, and then practiced it daily, we learned. 
Cleanliness. What does that mean? Avoiding con the contamination and pollution of the world. That's tough in our world, isn't it? It was tough in theirs. But admittedly, technologies enhance the pressures of the world on each of us. Rest in the Lord, fellowship with Him, and finally a discipline of a balanced life. And each one of these has verses you can dig out of the notes, and I encourage you to develop a program for yourself from the Word of God in terms of your spiritual health. We'll resist the temptation to, to belabor the obvious here. The verses are, will be in your notes for what it's worth. But he continues, verse 3, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Would that we each would have a reputation precede us like that. As thou walkest in the truth. Compare that to the first three verses of the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man that walketh uprightly, and so on. Be a doer, not just a hearer. That's why we have three legs in the stool of the Institute. Berean, verse by verse, the study of the Bible. The Issachar leg, the study, understanding the times. But the third one, the Koinos track, the practical doing of whatever you've been called to. True living comes from living truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy. This is John. Get, get a, a glimpse of John's heart here. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Boy, that's a pastor speaking, isn't it? That's a shepherd speaking. He cared for all of them that, thy, that my children walk in truth. All of them. This is follow-up from the heart. John had a pastor's heart. Verse 5 and 6. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Deeds, not just words, is the call here. Sounds like James 2, and it's going to echo further in the as we go on here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.